the point is authoritarianism is frighteningly on the rise. And some of the things that polarization produces, like distrust of institutions, distrust of individuals, distrust of people personally, politically, structurally, really, really increases the terrain for authoritarianism. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today are Celinda Lake and Ed Goez. They're both well-known political pollsters. She's a Democrat, he's a Republican. They've worked together for years doing separate analysis of the same battleground poll, and they've become friends. They have a book out about civility in politics called A Question of Respect, Bringing Us Together in a Deeply Divided Nation. I talked to them about their work together and about this book. I hope you'll listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Celinda and Ed with A Question of Respect. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Ed and Celinda, would you each mind introducing yourselves and giving me a quick biography? I'm Celinda Lake. I'm the Democratic pollster on this team, a team that's worked together for over 30 years with Ed Goaz, Republican pollster, and I'll let him introduce himself. We met at a piano bar in Budapest, where all good things start, doing work for NDI on democracy. And we are known for having done the battleground poll, which was a very unique bipartisan poll that had separate analysis, a joint vehicle, but separate analysis. And the book reflects that. Our relationship has been marked, I think, by two things. One, I was born and raised on a ranch. I was born and raised a Republican. Ed was born and raised in the military, born and raised a Democrat. We both changed parties, but we were both raised with a very, very strong belief in respect for other people and that you can lose our respect, but that we respect people for their basic humanity. We both changed parties in the same year, 1972. Ed often kids me I change to the losing side, but not always. Our friendship has been marked by not necessarily agreeing on everything by a long shot, but deep, deep affection and respect for each other. And we've worked on a lot of issues together. We've worked on immigration, where Ed has been an incredibly courageous voice in his party. We've worked on foster care and children's issues. We've worked on the death penalty. We've worked on a variety of issues together and shown that people can come together and achieve results. And that's what this book is about. How do we get over the polarization and the division? But let me have Ed tell you the story of himself and the book. 
Okay. So I'm Ed Goas, a Republican pollster who actually stepped down from my firm at the end of the year. I am actually going to focus my time over the next two years on the civility issue, the respect issue nationwide. One of the things I found very encouraging is that civility institutes are popping up in universities all over the country. And I think the country's ready for new normal in terms of civility and respect and, quite frankly, niceness, as opposed to the ugliness that has built out there between so many parts. I've worked in politics for a very long time. As Linda said, I grew up an army brat. I worked in my first campaign as a Democrat. At 12 years old, I volunteered in Lyndon Johnson's campaign in California because my father was in Vietnam and I was trying to understand why he was there and what that was all about. And that has led to a very long period of time of, of working in politics, 58 years, either volunteering some student politics or adult politics, as we used to call it. You know, can't say enough about my relationship with Celinda. What is interesting that helped develop that is we decided to write a separate strategic analysis that we didn't see each other's analysis until the night before we released it to the press. And in 30 years of going through that process, it wasn't a matter of how do I argue against what she's saying. It's respect for the points she made and trying to do the same quality of work on the other side. And so one of the things I think we have a good sense of is listening being a major part of this as we move forward. That's something that we focus on a great deal in the book. I think that if you look at the current environment, I think everyone's having a hard time to work out of that environment even if they want to. And as we address in the book, there's many things leading to that, whether it's social media or cable news network and what they're doing on logarithms or what's happening with super PACs out there and the way campaigns are being run. So hopefully we can have a good discussion about it. I appreciate having you both on and I share your interest in civility and I try when I'm talking to people to model that. And I know that that isn't the case in all places media these days, for sure. Ed, I want to ask you a question and ask the same question of Celinda. Of the many people that you've worked on their campaigns over the years, are there any particular instances of people you helped create arguments which you think really kind of went against the grain of what you're trying to do now with civility or turned into politicians who have been harmful to the system broadly because of the way they conduct themselves? I like to think, and certainly the later in my career I got, the more I could pick and choose. One of the things when we put the firm together 35 years ago, my partners and I put the Republican firm together, is we decided after years and years of working for the party, we didn't have to work for every jerk that got the nomination. And so we entered our relationship with the candidates as kind of a two-way interview. You're saying whether our services is what you want. And if we do our job well, the time we spend for you will be taking time away from our family. And are you the quality type person that deserves that kind of time? And there's been some that have disappointed us and not ended up being quite who we thought they were in the beginning. But there's a very long list of candidates that I've worked with that I'm very proud to have been a part of their campaigns. One of them being who we dedicated the book to, John McCain. He was always a class act in terms of 
treating people with respect, maybe not towards the end on Donald Trump, but virtually everyone else he worked with. He had some very deep relationships on both sides of the aisle when he was in the Senate. I've also had some candidates like James Lightford in Oklahoma that we came together to work in his campaign for the Senate with a true commitment to run only a positive campaign. Now, one of the problems we have today is that with super PACs, you're lucky if you control 25% of the message and super PACs think their job is to be negative. We bypass that and end up winning that campaign. He's been that way ever since. The answer is yes, there are some. I'd rather focus on those that are really trying to change this environment of negativism that is out there because it serves no purpose in terms of moving forward. We are passing less and doing less than we ever have through Congress. And I think, unfortunately, that is turning the voters more and more cynical because their problems aren't being answered. And I think that only fuels this negative environment. How would you answer that, Celinda? So it's a complicated answer, but very similar to what Ed said. When we started our firm at about the same, or actually earlier than Ed, one of the things we did is we said we didn't want to work for everybody, that we had criteria. We wanted to work for progressive change. We wanted to work for candidates who support abortion, including funding for low-income women, because that meant true access. We asked questions about our candidates before they got to ask questions about us, too, which some people thought was presumptuous, but many people responded very positively to. Two-thirds of our work is on issues for foundations, for issue groups, and I feel very, very strongly, is it a partisan issue to want to extend Social Security benefits to homemakers and give them credit for the work they're doing inside the home or caregiving? Is it a partisan issue to expand foster care services, a bill that we pulled on with a bipartisan team that was sponsored by Hillary Clinton and Tom DeLay, a very conservative Texas member who had fostered 10 children? Is it a partisan issue to repair a bridge or repair a road before it collapses? And my belief is no, it isn't. I also work for a lot of women candidates. We've worked for more women candidates than any other firm in the country. People believe that women will be more likely to come together. There are some divisive women, obviously, but people believe women will come together. The first time we hit an impasse on the budget ceiling, it was the group of women, bipartisan women in the Senate, who had been having dinner together once a month off the record, potluck that was able to come up with the compromise that dealt with the impasse. And of course, as has been outlined today, the four leaders in charge of the budget right now and the budget committees and the ranking minority are women. It's four women in charge of that process. So that has been something that's really interested me that, yes, you could have different orientations, but you could find common ground. You could find things to work together on. The other thing that I think is very important is polling is a great way to bring the voice of the voters to the table. And while there are many of our institutions that have become more polarized and bad incentive structures for division and polarization, which we talk a lot about in the book, 
voters believe firmly that any three Americans can agree on more than Congress does and that real people agree on more, work together more, and get more done than a lot of our political institutions anymore. I share that agreement and want to look to what has happened to our system here that has created this incentive structure for division rather than an incentive structure for results. It does seem like the political professionals and the elected leaders are exhibiting more polarization than the populace at large. Do you think that you two are anomalies in getting along, in speaking to each other, in being interested in this question of respect and civility among political professionals right now? Or do you think that's kind of a commonly held position among political consultants? I think with the older, it's held by many and respecting each other. There's a lot of relationships that have built over the years. I think with the younger generation, they're kind of responding to the environment and playing within the environment. Something I've always kind of joked around with, but it's not really a joke, is how often media people will say, well, negative works. That's why we do negative spots. And my response to that is always, so does positive. You got to try it once in a while. And one of the concerns that I have in today's environment is we spend so much time fighting over what we're against we don't spend nearly enough time fighting for what we're for. And I think both parties have suffered from that. The other thing that we almost put in the book, and I think is something that needs a great deal of discussion, you're beginning to see this discussion surface, is a group out there that puts out an ideological map of Congress every two years. And if you look at 1990, it was a fairly evenly distributed line of dots right to left and left to right. If you look at 2020, 30 years later, it's at the two ends with about 18 dots in the middle. And I look very closely at what was the difference between those times. And in the late 80s, early 90s, there was about 35% of Republicans voting in Republican primaries and about 35% of Democrats voting in Democrat primaries. In this last election, 2022, there was 17% of Republicans voted in the Republican primary and 15% of Democrats voted in the Democrat primaries. So what we have, even before we get to the general election discussion, we have both parties, I believe, failing because only the extremes on the far right and the far left are participating in the primaries. And that's the type of candidates they're electing. They're electing or nominating candidates that the general electorate then chooses from to extremes, as opposed to the bulk of the electorate, is not from either extreme, they're from the center. That's why I like to call them centrist as opposed to moderates, is they can be conservative, somewhat conservative, they can be liberal, somewhat liberal, and they can volunteer that they are moderate. But that center is about 67, 68% of the American population, and they are not being represented in the primaries. So their choice is limited because they're electing candidates that they think their job is to come here and fight for their values as opposed to work to get solutions. So Linda, do you think you two are anomalies? Well, Ed is unique in my world. For me, he's really one of my very best friends. And one of the things I loved about the book that a lot of people haven't understood, and it was Ed's concept, is that we're standing back to back and people thought, why 
are you standing back to back rather than looking at each other? And Ed said this is symbolic of the, a military tradition of having each other's back. And I have no friend who has had my back as much as Ed Goas has. It's a nice picture on the cover. I do think the graphic of this, <laughs> although I, I have to say the two people look pretty young. They, they look about teenager or you don't think 20s. we're young like that? That's I don't know. I mean, you're, I'm 57, and I think you both might be a little ahead of me. But <laughs> So our friendship is unique. It's definitely unique and important in my life. I like Ed's analysis. What I'm really struck by is how difficult it is to be an elected official right now, Democrat or Republican, how many people are really good public servants. They can make a lot more money in something else. They could have a lot easier lives. Their families could have easier lives. Their children could have lives they like better. Yet they choose to do this remarkable thing of being in elected office. And I think there are really, really bad incentive structures out there. Some of them are the unintended consequences of good solutions. Some of them are the intended consequences of very short-term thinking about power and winning. And so we're really analyzing that. And I'd love for Ed to address, he had come up a long time ago with a problem-solution paradigm that I think is excellent and really explains what's going on here. But we need to identify these, what we call toxic incentive structures for bad behavior and change them. And we need a lot of reform across the system. And I know in the book, you guys mentioned the way Congress members, for example, are incented to be outrageous, to say things that get them attention and helps their fundraising. That's a big part of it. Everything connected to attention getting that we see right now, the, the show horse, not the workhorse, right? Well, I think that's true. And I was known as not being a big fan of Donald Trump. But the whole thing I always had to admit to myself is that he was a symptom of where the country was. He wasn't the disease. And we have reached a point that the country is so cynical about everything that the problem with cynical voters is that even though they think they're being protective by being cynical, they are the most susceptible to demagoguery. And so whether it's demagoguery from a candidate, whether it's demagoguery on social media, demagoguery on cable news networks, or picking up on the demagoguery that is in the super PAC negative commercials. They become a victim as opposed to actually being a protector by moving into that mood. I'm curious about that notion of him being a symptom. Everyone knows that he took advantage of existing problems, and I guess that means he's something of a symptom, but he was different in his practice in the lying and all of the character flaws that went to a different level, right? And you can see how different he is historically by the January 6th events and the inability to accept a loss of the election that goes to a degree that nobody else, I think, has reached and which has brought along so many members of your party. I kind of resist the idea that he's only a symptom or that he's part of a linear historical development in this thing. I think he he exacerbated the problems greatly. Let me pick two groups to kind of explain what I mean. One is conservative Christians, of which I consider myself to be one. 
I say a symptom because when his character, his caricature of himself that he developed out there, if you will, that everyone was always shaking their head and wondering, why is he doing so well with this group that in so many ways he shows himself to be totally against the way that they think people should act? And yet they accepted him because of their cynicism. You saw it in rural America, where he ran very, very strong. And what we had seen in rural America is that there was some resistance in rural America to political correctness, that they were tired of assumptions being made about them with millennials who stayed in the rural areas. People in the cities assumed it was because they couldn't get out, not because they chose that lifestyle and to stay there. And so they were very upset with being told what to think and how to say things. And along comes a guy who didn't care what people thought on the way he acted. And basically, whether you want to say he had no shame on those kind of things, all of a sudden he seemed like he was fighting for them without even having to say it because he was standing up against some of that political correctness that they had been so beaten down by. Well, I can see a lot of reasons that people have found him attractive. I think there are issue reasons. I think there's personality reasons like that. But that's different than watching his behavior from the standpoint that we have of him sort of betraying his office. Isn't that like a huge part of the current problem in our society? Just how far things have gone since 2015 when he really got on the scene? Oh, I, th I think absolutely it's a problem. But you have to acknowledge that it's been a problem on both sides. The ugliness has been on both sides. He just took kind of center course on that. I had a great deal of respect for current president, President Biden, because he was more of a centrist. He was someone that acted respectfully out there. I think he's been pushed sometimes to go beyond that by, sorry, Celinda, but some of the progressives in the Democratic Party that felt like he wasn't fighting hard enough for them. But I think he keeps coming back to what he can really lean on is that he is a, a person of value. In terms of Trump, it's very interesting. At the end of the 2020 campaign, we did some analysis, actually it came out right before January 6th, that if you broke up the Republicans, they fit into three categories. 60% were people that basically would follow Donald Trump anywhere. Whatever he said, they accepted. 30% had moved to what I consider to be kind of a safe haven. They said, I like his policies, but I don't like the way he acts. And then there were 10% that were basically never Trumpers. Over the last two years, there's been a shift, and there's a sign it's continued, of about 20% of the believe everything he says shifted to, I like his policies, but I don't like the way he acts. They are now the majority in the Republican Party of 50%. And the believes anything he says, and some people have it down to 30%, is in that 30 to 40% of Republicans. The problem is for Republicans is that in a multi-candidate race, 30 or 40% is enough to win the nomination. I think there is some hand-wringing. I think the hand-wringing is turning into kind of a vocal statement out there that it's time for him to move on and let's move to the next. Something I believe very deeply in for both parties is that, and you can't say a younger candidate because younger candidate compared to Trump and Biden could be 69 years old. But I think 
whichever party surfaces with a John Kennedy type, charismatic, young, new ideas, new ways of framing things in a positive way, I think they could walk away stealing the majority of the voters for decades. So, Linda, do you think that this is a symmetrical problem across the parties, as Ed seemed to suggest, that problems on both sides and they're sort of equivalent? I don't think anyone's equivalent to Donald Trump and the way he's weaponized some of the problems. But DeSantis, (laughs) there's a vast part of that party now that won't convict Trump in the Senate or continues to swear allegiance to him, right? There are. But I think that one of the things about the book, and particularly among Democrats, it's too easy to see this problem as a problem of individual leaders, you know, Trump and DeSantis becoming a Trumpist, etc. We're looking for what is producing and rewarding this kind of behavior. Why is it winning behavior, not losing behavior? And Trump certainly was excellent at weaponizing social media and using it for division. But the siloed way that information is provided, the way the algorithms work, is contributing to the polarization. Trump very ably used, built, reinforced cable news as part of the problem. But the point of the matter is that we don't have Walter Cronkite anymore. We don't have Huntley Brinkley. We don't have the kind of... um, news. People talk about going to BBC to try to find more neutral, thoughtful Americans. So there are campaign finance reform. I am a huge, both of us are huge believers in campaign finance reform. We have different kind of reform, but I was really behind and worked hard for the small donor contribution piece of this. What we didn't realize was, or what I didn't realize, I'll just speak for myself, is to raise money, no matter which side you're on, you have to take the extreme position, you have to be very hot, and that produces greater polarization among the donors, among the candidates. Both parties have suffered plummeting participation rates in their primaries. And so their primaries, I mean, honestly, we should work with you to get you nominated in some Democratic primary because it's only like 13% of the voters we could get you elected in a primary and we'd be better for it. Who are you talking about? Who's the you in that sentence? You. Oh, me? (laughs) I'm in DC. DC. We have no... uh... I know no we don't have a offices, vote. no federal offices. Of you. That's right. We are uh, a colony and I'm in D.C. too. So uh, Otherwise, I'm sure I would be that. top of the ticket. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but the point of the matter is that I think what we're interested in is less an individual analysis, because then you can always say, well, once we get to get, get rid of Trump, it will be over. And it's not going to be over. No. Well, he's, it, a lot in- of people have learned from him. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. And I think what we want to do are what are the institutions here? What are the reforms that we can have? What are the things we can demand as voters from our elected officials? And what's the role of the next generation? I'm curious from both of you, uh, you wrote this book, which is this collaboration and a continuation of a long-term collaboration. How do your colleagues and other readers respond to it? How has it been received out there? Do you want to start, Ed? I've been extremely happy with with the response. Virtually every event that we plan has had over double the number of people we thought we could attract to it. And it's it's gone through, you know, for example, in the first two weeks, we made it to the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. 
it has sold tens of thousands of copies out there. Celinda had something else she had to do, but I did a tour of four campus towns in Oklahoma, my home where I went to, to college. And within a week of doing that, we made the Oklahoma bestsellers list that I didn't even know existed, but was based <laughs> just on what came out of the actual brick and mortar stores. I think the response has been extremely encouraging, which is part of the reason why, as I said, I plan on spending the next couple of years trying to fan those flames, because I think there is a real thirst for some type of normalcy and niceness to come back in things. So Linda, when people have responded to the book, what in particular do you think they're seeing as the key takeaway? Well, I have to tell you, Nathaniel, and it's a great question. I was worried about the receptivity of the book on my side because my client base is very progressive and my personal network is very progressive for the most part. And I was worried about the receptivity. But what was interesting is I think people are really hungry for this conversation and really upset that we can't agree on anything that personal. And there's some personal anecdotes in there, including from a very good friend of mine from Montana who talks about her relationship with her father and how polarizing that has become. And everybody knows relationships in their friendship network and family network that have become almost impossible, even at something like Thanksgiving, because of the polarization. So I've been stunned at the receptivity. And I think people think this is thought provoking. And I think it's been helped by the fact that like the battleground survey, and this was Ed's concept, and it was really smart. We wrote the problems in the we voice, but we wrote the solutions in the I voice. Some solutions we agree on, some solutions we offer alternatives on. That gave a lot of space for a lot of ideas and a lot of conversation and a lot of people to participate in the conversation. It, it also strikes me as it makes the book a little easier to write because it's not like a committee having to agree on every sentence. You can agree to disagree. And I mean, one of the great things about a functioning democracy is not that everybody agrees, but that you have a forum for settling differences by counting up people on one side or the other in different institutions. And I would rather do it that way than with punches and guns and such. My goodness, Nathaniel, we need to get your quote. We need to take that quote and put it on the back of the book. <laughs> that is exactly right. And that is what we feel is really important. I was interviewing yesterday uh, three people, the executive director and a 15-year-old and a 20-year-old from the Georgia Youth Justice Coalition, I think was the name of the group. And they introduced themselves with their pronouns. They're very progressive. They are uh, very schooled in what's right and what's wrong about what's going on in politics in Georgia and very impressive young folks. But I asked them this question about, uh, can, do you reach out to people on the other side? Do you, how do you feel about, you know, differences of opinion? Because there's a stereotype that the left is not good about that. And sometimes that stereotype is correct. I, I was really gratified to see the way that all of them responded to it, which was very much, actually, we, we have been taught to listen. 
you know, that's part of our training. We know that we're not all going to agree with each other within our side of the movement. We know that other folks are citizens and neighbors too. So it was part of their culture in a way that I wasn't sure I would discover. And I, I, that's hopeful to me. That is very exciting. And I think there's a lot of that going on and it's underestimated. One of the things is pollsters. I think we both feel quite strongly about is to be a good pollster, you have to be a good listener. And one of the things that both of us are really committed to in polling is we believe polling right now, it often works against democracy, but we think it can work for democracy. It is a way to bring the voices of the public to the forum and the voices of all of the public. And so we feel very strongly that listening is at the core of this, respecting, hearing all sides, finding what is the common element, what are the points of disagreement, what are the doubts that people have. This is a book that could be written by pollsters in a way that, say, going back to an earlier question you asked, it wouldn't have been written by media consultants or direct mail consultants. Our profession legitimizes and demands good listening. I was listening to a different podcast today, Joe Trippi interviewing Mike Podhorzer, who used to be the political director at the AFL-CIO. They had consensus between the two of them that uh, that the Republican Party has been taken over by the what they were calling the MAGA Republicans. I think it might be Biden has made that term stick. And that the way that we need to campaign is to point out that, you know, that we're up against a potential authoritarian takeover of our government. And having made enough of that message is the reason that we've kind of gone against the cycle, uh, the typical midterm cycle in 2022, and why Trump was able to be defeated in 2020. Do you buy that line of thinking, either of you or both of you? I can see some of the beginnings of it. But again, taking over the party, I think, is a overstatement. Because right now, the only people involved in the, picking the candidates are 17% of the Republicans. It's not like 80% of the Republicans have moved over to be a Trump voter. In fact, right now, it's down to only about 30%, with about half of those actually involved in the primaries. So I think it is uh, certainly something that will swing back and forth. We may take, quite frankly, one more presidential election to kind of put Trump in the past. Hopefully, it is not as much as they say. And I think a good example of that in the other direction was going into the 2022 election as the news kept going up that the Republicans were going to do well. What's interesting is we ended up on Election Day exactly where we thought we would be at the beginning of the cycle because we knew the average gain was about 24 to 30 of the out party winning seats in Congress. And we knew that in 2020, we won 14 seats, winning back those districts that we had lost in the suburbs. They won in those districts, but Trump ran behind Biden. And that was really the first of the set that should have been applied to 2022. What happened in the last months of the campaign is two things. One is Biden made the very strong statement in early September about the MAGO Republicans. And it pushed some of those Republicans that were not part of that back to the Republican Party. 
But what was happening in the numbers beyond that was that many of the progressives were not reporting positive feelings about the president because they were not quite happy that he was pushing their issues enough. But when we then went into the final weeks of the campaign, they all went home. And so the numbers shifted very quickly, shifted somewhat because of the democracy speech that Biden did at the end. He pulled them back home. But the other was Trump was out there moving around the campaigns. Something that was missed by all the news networks is Trump went into eight congressional districts in the final month of the campaign. Republicans lost seven of those eight seats. And so him going in was enough to push those that were not favorable on Trump. Did he pick eight districts that he thought needed him? and to, Or do you think he actually drove opinion by those visits? And how can we tell? I think he thought he wanted to put them over the top. We all had polling showing they were already over the top. But his going into that district then put it to the earlier polarized situation between the two parties, with, quite frankly, some of the Republicans voting not for our candidate or not turning out, which is another thing both parties have to deal with, is I think both parties have gotten very much into the mobilization in campaigns as opposed to persuasion in campaigns. And I think that is affecting the overall dialogue we have in campaigns nationwide. I do hear a lot of people seem to have somewhat given up on persuasion. They feel like everyone is so fixed in their corners. Maybe, Selinda, you can answer this, but the earlier figure of 60% of the people, give or take, being centrists, I, I haven't heard that generally in analysis of the country. What's the basis for that exactly? How do you go about making that estimate? Well, it's actually Ed's formula, and so I'll let Ed answer that. But I want to go back to your question of authoritarianism, because I think the argument, and we work a lot with Mike, that Mike is making is more grounded in a perspective overall in our system, not about a particular party, and also internationally. So the point is authoritarianism is frighteningly on the rise. And some of the things that polarization produces like distrust of institutions, distrust of individuals, distrust of people personally, politically, structurally, really, really increases the terrain for authoritarianism. That's what the research showed. It also showed that January 6th was a big issue for voters, really mobilized a lot of Democratic voters. So some of the things that we're identifying we have a whole chapter on distrust, which concerns us a great deal and which started, frankly, with Watergate, are things that are now, distrust is so high, there are only about 16% of people that trust Congress, a minuscule number of people who trust other individuals or think you should start with trust. There's an erosion here of some of the fundamental things that we need, a news system that actually delivers news and not rhetoric a system of participation where people participate in primaries and down and generals, a system of trusting institutions and individuals, as well as wanting to change them. There's so massive erosion of some of these fundamental things that you need for a functioning democracy that I think the point Mike was making, and I agree with, and I think the book makes, our democracy is in crisis, and we need to make some changes 
for this country to improve and survive and for a democracy to survive. There's a point in the book where you together suggest that people have become more cynical because their needs aren't properly being met by the system, because we have less faith in our elite institutions, we worry about them being corrupt, and because solutions that we've proposed have created other problems. I was wondering if that argument was persuasive because I'm not sure that we are doing so much worse than we were at times before this big decline in those measurements. And I'm wondering if the cause isn't a 40, 50 year campaign by politicians of both parties running against the institutions and teaching people to be dissatisfied with things for their own short-term gains. How do you think that plays into it? Or do you still think it's just what you're saying? Well, I don't think it's short-term and hopefully that's not the way it comes across in the book as I think we've been building there for a long time. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is a couple of things. One is that so many of the members of Congress that come to run for Congress, all they want to talk about are issues that they're concerned with, as opposed to some understanding and anchor, if you will, based on what they think the role of government should be. You just don't hear them talking about that anymore. You also don't hear them talking about whether it's the congressman or the staff for the congressman or even some of the political consultants. We used to think we were all part of a system of public service. You never hear that mentioned anymore. And my point on the problem solving is that it's going through that for decades where not understanding the basic problem solving structure, which is you talk about problem, talk about solutions, you implement solutions, and that creates a new set of problems. And I think our forefathers understood that better than we do today, in that the story that we tell about Washington talking to Jefferson, where Jefferson questioned why the Senate, and his comment to him, why do you pour your tea in the saucer? And Jefferson said, let it cool. The Senate was developed to take a pause in that third step and ask the question any good businessman will will ask themselves, is this solution going to be better than the problem we're dealing with, or is it going to create new problems? And what we have seen is that because we're not doing that, because we don't understand that structure problems, is that we are going through time and time and time again, going through talking about education or healthcare, there's various issues. We're not realizing we've worked ourselves into a point that most of the problems that we're dealing with today are problems created by our solution, not the root problem. And voters sense that. And that's what brings their cynicism. That's kind of the Republican line on maybe it's better for government not to act. The argument I hear all the time is the conditions for many people are grave enough in this country that we ought to be changing them. And there's kind of an imperative to do that. I think that the role that the Republican Party traditionally paid that was a very important and good one was to say, let's look at this carefully. Let's look at the incentives that this creates. Let's not just rush into legislation without 
considering it well. Let's think about the costs. All of those things made sense to me, but I'm not sure that's really where the current party is. No, it's uh, not at all. And, and quite frankly, if your job here is to have no government um, or no government in certain areas, you're here for the wrong reasons. You know, it's about how do you make the system better to help people. Ronald Reagan, and this was missed on Reagan. Reagan, yes, he talked about leaner government, but he said leaner, more effective. It had both component parts to it. That is lost today by many of the Republicans that are out there talking about. It's just all about making it as small as you can make it. And if you want it to disappear, maybe you should disappear with it. They talk about that, and it's not clear that that's actually what they pass either. Um, what do you think is the responsibility of the political consultants in this time when we do have such challenges to the democracy in polarization, in other kinds of anti-democratic actions? How much should that be on your colleagues and people who are running campaigns, political professionals, to steer their candidates, uh, if possible, in different directions? How much is this a, a problem that can be handled at all by the by the pollsters and the media consultants and et cetera? I think the main thing is we have to move away from the influence of super PACs in this. And again, one of the unintended consequences when they try to take away money going to the parties is they weaken the parties or set up a system that then went to the super PACs who they think their job is to run the negative. And even if they don't in the campaigns, they then, when they're trying to raise money, they get overly negative trying to raise money. Imagine what it's like today being a consultant in one of those campaigns. You're lucky if you control 25% of the message because between your super PACs, their super PACs, and but, your opponent. But there's other consultants that are running the super PACs and they're all, and you know, they're communicating with each other. So I'm asking about responsibility. These are all part of the same system, even if you maybe as a, as a consultant, typically works for the candidate directly, there's another consultant that's helping the super PAC spend their money or... I don't think you can expect the consulting class to be the leaders here. I think they will always be the followers. I think they are inherently conservative. I think they are incentivized to be winning at any cost. I will say when you work with a campaign, I really agree with Ed, it's quite different because... As a consultant, you can't alienate the spouse who says, honey, that's not you. I can't believe you're presenting yourself that way. Or the candidate who says, I don't want my kids to see this ad. I am not putting it up. You are held responsible. I don't know that you should but take somehow, it. Up. But somehow so many of the ads that we see now are somebody holding, you know, a big gun on their campaign launch saying, you know, this is me. I'm completely comfortable with the weapon that just caused destruction four days ago in, in a city nearby. You'd be hard put to find five candidates out there that started their campaigns that way and are currently in office. And you'd be hard put, honestly, to find a candidate who started that way and won because of that ad. They may have raised money because of that ad. Well, the, the Lauren Boberts of the world certainly are there. Oh, is she still in Congress? <laughs> yep, she hung out by about 500 votes, if I remember. Yeah. I think that the responsibility is going to come. I think a different structure has to be created. I think there are incentives for toxic behavior right now. 
But I think the responsibility will come from the demands of the voters. And I think right now the voters feel like they have demanded something different and can't get it. I think the responsibility will have to come from the candidates. Many, many candidates in both sides of the aisle do not want to run this way, do not want to run these campaigns. They don't want to spend their time fundraising. They don't have the guts that Langford had or the consultants with Ed, but they would like to be running what I'm for. Do we have any hope of a Republican nominee who is a model of civility in in 2024? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, most of the people think, and this is what I think a lot of people are trying to figure out, is a basic assumption that DeSantis and Trump will destroy each other. And then who's the guy that can come up the middle and be the or the gal, nominee? Yeah. And that 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 is that is maybe hopeful or wishful thinking, but we'll have to see. And I will point to one person who's had a different experience that gets mentioned out there, and that's Governor Youngkin in Virginia. And what was interesting about his campaign is that they put a new law in place in Virginia, not doing away with super PACs, but allowing unlimited contributions instantly reported to the candidate rather than to the super PACs. And what happened is it dried up the super PACs, and most of the money went to those two campaigns, which meant they were then running their own message, a majority of their own message. They won that campaign, not with negative commercials, but by showing who he was as a candidate, what he was for, not what he was against. I just interviewed Professor Sidney Milkus from University of Virginia. I don't know if you know his work, but he writes about the presidency and parties and the connection of movements to them. He makes a big pitch in, in his latest book for strengthening the parties and and bringing back their role as a mediary between the voter and the candidate. I found it pretty persuasive, even though it's not in the fashion right now. And parties should be doing a better job of weeding them out. I think that's hard. I think right now, until, I mean, I, I think there was a theory about parties playing that mediating role. I'm not sure unless you change some other structures and maybe that's what he's talking about. You'd have to move financing back into the parties as opposed to from the candidates and ideological special interest groups and, and online. I personally think parties should be, they should make fundraising for candidates and for parties easier and for super PACs much harder, like Ed is suggesting perhaps. Well, and I, I tell you something that would support that is when these laws changed, at the time they changed, at least on the Republican side, the state chairman of those parties were more the senior statesmen. They'd been around a long time. They give direction to what the party was going to do and the organization was going to do. They played a major role in raising money for the party. And then they had an executive director, which was more the day-to-day -day tactician of what happened. But they were run by someone that was a senior statesman of the party, if you will. Within three years, four years of those laws changing, at least on the Republican side, somewhere between 38 and 40 of the 50 states, the senior states been moved on, the executive director moved up to being state chairman and started taking a salary and played little to do with fundraising because they couldn't do as much anymore and played a bigger role in kind of playing the, the strategic game of what was happening in the campaigns. And I think that 
is another place that, quite frankly, the party was hurt. It wasn't being led by people that were there for all the right reasons, as opposed to there for the wrong reasons. One of the things that comes up a bit in your book is uh, some reforms like ranked choice voting and the democracy vouchers that they have in Seattle, where you have the ability for anybody to make contributions to campaigns. It doesn't come out of their pocket, comes out of the public tax system. Do you think that those are promising in terms of changing the incentives for candidates to move to the fringes? We think they're very, very promising. And in fact, we work on ranked choice voting and we worked on the democracy vouchers in Seattle. And we are Mary Patola's pollster, the candidate who won in Alaska in the Don Young seat because of ranked choice voting. So I think they have enormous potential to bring in new leadership, to increase the voice of the people and reduce the voice of special interests, to reduce the negativity in campaigns, and to reduce the polarization. There are all kinds of interesting reforms out there. And we also have to think about how these reforms interact with each other. But I think the point is, because of the polarization, we are not moving forward And it's not accidental that these reforms, the Seattle voucher, the ranked choice voting in Alaska, ranked choice voting elsewhere, passes because the voters pass it in referendum. It doesn't come from the legislatures. It comes from the voters. The only point I keep making, and and I don't know what the answer is, but I know what the test needs to be on whether it's working. And that is, are we increasing the number of people who are involved in picking the nominees that we then have to pick from as candidates. That if ranked choice voting is not involving on the front end more from the center that don't represent the two extremes, then it doesn't matter. It may make things look somewhat differently, but at the end of the day, it's not solving the bigger problem I see, which is how do you involve people in picking the nominees that you then pick from? Although it does, in a primary, often put forward the candidate who's most palatable to the most people over the person who gets the most votes initially. And that does tend to move people to a more moderate position. And ranked choice voting has increased participation in, um, you know, in Alaska, and it has increased participation at the first stage because you get to express all of your opinions and because your vote counts. It's the definitive election. You can go in and and vote for someone who isn't in the lead necessarily or contending for it and still know that your second preference might be the valuable one. It's appealing to me. I've had a number of people come on to talk about that, and I think I've been persuaded that it would be good. In the end of the book... You say that people, you tell, can tell from polling and I assume from talking to them in person that there's a hunger for civil discourse. And I kind of buy that, but there's also seems to be a countervailing hunger for the opposite. How are we going to push things in the direction that you guys are both advocating? I don't think there's a hunger for uncivil discourse. I think there's an incentive structure uh, for it. No, hunger for civil discourse. For there's a hunger for civil discourse. Yeah. And you, you were saying there's a hunger for both sides. And, I, and I'm... There's clearly like an appetite. I mean, Fox News was losing audience after the election when they weren't 
being election denialist enough and people were moving to some of the more fringe networks. It's just true. There's OAN and whatever. It just seems to be there is an appetite, particularly on the right, but also on the left for the most red meat out there that kind of coexists with this interest that people profess. And it's noted in your book for civil discourse. I mean, how are we going to, how do we sort that out? You've been studying public opinion, both of you, for so long. You must have the leverage on this. Back to your point that this has been decades in developing. I think it will take decades to move out of it and hopefully move out of it without a crisis. And one of the things I, I am proud about that we did in the book is we we wrote the first nine chapters about all the problems and all the negative incentives that were there before we even started writing the final chapter on hope. And we did so because we want to make sure that we hadn't built such a wall in analyzing what was out there that we would look Pollyannish in what we refer to at the end. And that was one of the things that I think helped us see what we saw in the last chapter, which was, yes, the youth is the future. How do we get them to be part of driving to a different political environment? But we ran up against a speed bump, if you will, with the young people, that overwhelmingly their responses as we talked to them was, I will be respectful to someone else if they are respectful to me first. And that's not the way the world works. And that's where we ended up in the book talking about if we truly want to start moving in that direction, we need to play a role. Celinda and I hopefully play a role in identifying leaders that can stand up as like John McCain did for me on how to deal in this political environment and do it respectfully. Um, well, his, and, I mean, his, the, the, the story you recount about him when an audience member makes an unfounded attack on Barack Obama and he says, no, that's not the way we're going to do this. And I, I mean, I remember watching that. I remember watching it on replay also. And I mean, we need more of that. That was, I mean, that was just such a instructive moment in, in that election. And it was so well done. And you know that it went to his character, right? And there's no reason it can't, that other people can't act like that also. There is. A, and the thing I respected about John McCain, um, I felt why he was so good on that, is that for many, many years in Vietnam, he suffered through the worst of humanity, the worst humanity can move to, uh, the way they tortured him, the mental games they played. Um, and I think that was always in the back of his head of, I'm not going to play the game that way. Um, and, and uh, you know, are we all going to go through a similar type thing? No. But I think we can find leaders. Um, if you want to see something interesting, look at the comment that Ben Sass made as he was leaving the Senate to go down to Florida to be head of Florida University. Um, he basically is someone that, quite frankly, I'm going to be looking for to stand up and start showing some of that leadership and lighting the way. And there's others that are there. We just need to encourage them to stand up and protect them, if you will, when they start getting shot down. Maybe we need to make sure that they get a huge fundraising boost, boost <laughs> when they say something that's uh, moderating in our times. Yeah, that's never going to happen. That's the problem. <laughs> and uh, 
And most people think that they can't think of a, a worse expenditure for their money than uh, giving a <laughs> contribution. That said, though, I think what we can do is right now people believe these um, are winning strategies. We can say change the incentives and voters don't want this to be winning strategies. So we can make structural changes that uh, don't make these winning strategies. And that could include, and this is just my recommendation, public financing. Uh, we went to small donor contributions, or it could something like the democracy voucher where everybody's got some money to spend. Um, but I think that what we have to do is uh, make sure that respect is part of a winning strategy. And we have to push back when we see things we don't like. But right now, women in particular don't want to engage in it because they think, I'll just add to the division. I don't want to get in the fight. I'm sick of the fight. I'm sick of crazy Uncle Tom who sends all this stuff in for, uh, in you know Thanksgiving emails. I tell the kids, don't argue with your uncle at Thanksgiving. So I think that it's important for us as voters it to make sure that these strategies don't win. Well, I, I appreciate that you two who've been on opposing sides have that respect and, and friendship with each other and that you carried on uh, the battleground poll for all that time and that you're willing to come together on this podcast uh, and talk about the book. So uh, I appreciate that. Is there, is there a, a question I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think it was a wonderful interview and thank you for um, such a respectful interview as well. Same here. And, and I do have to say, I mean, Celinda is always so gracious. Um, you know, our friendship that we've developed is not based on agreeing on everything as much as listening and respecting each other's for our opinions. And I hope we see more of that out there. I hope so too. I'll try to be, uh, one person who's part of it. Um, thank you. So thank you much for your time. That was Ed and Celinda. Their book is A Question of Respect, Bringing Us Together in a Deeply Divided Nation. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network, Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.